Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When Donald Trump came down the escalator, a chill went down my spine. And not everything has happened the way that I feared, but a lot of what I feared would happen has happened. And that's been the motivation for me to be in politics. Hey, it's Johanna Masca. This week on Press Advance, Nikki Haley lost South Carolina, her home state, to Donald Trump, who won about 59% of the primary vote. That sets Trump up well for tonight's contest in Michigan and for Super Tuesday, where it's widely expected he'll win the number of delegates that he needs to make the presidential nomination of the Republican Party his. Alongside this contest, the new conservative party gathered at its annual conservative political action conference, where one of the speakers promised this. I just wanted to say, welcome to the end of democracy. (laughs) We're here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January 6th, but we will we we will endeavor to to get rid of it and replace it with with this right here. We'll replace it with this right right here. Amen. That's right, because all glory, all glory is not to government, all glory to God. He was holding a cross. I have nothing but respect for people of faith in our country, but our country was founded on freedom of religion. Trump later in that same conference promised Judgment Day and hugged and kissed an American flag. It's with that backdrop that I bring on Dimitri Melhorn, who is executive partner of Investing in U.S., an investment fund he founded with Reid Hoffman, who also founded LinkedIn and is widely known as a Democratic donor, though he did back Nikki Haley. Dimitri has some eerie predictions he makes towards the end. But first, I had to start by getting to know who he is and why he cares so much about America's future. My personal story comes from my family. Uh, My father is an immigrant. Uh, Actually, he was a war refugee. He was bombed out of his home in Germany by the British Royal Air Force when he was not yet two years old because he was born in industrial Germany when World War II was happening. And eventually he wound up in this country and this country welcomed him, even though he had a very funny name and, you know, he didn't have any money. And he uh, was part of a German culture that was not very popular then. But the country welcomed him. And eventually he met my mom, who was born in Los Angeles as a Jew. She went to UCLA, part of the Jewish community. And you know her great-grandparents had come to this country from fleeing violence from the pogroms of Europe, from the anti-Semitic violence. And when they got here, you know, they were accused of being communists and they were accused of being crazy and they had funny names and spoke funny languages and they were welcomed. And my mom and dad were part of a generation that, I mean, my dad had aunts and uncles who were Nazis, and my mom had relatives who were slaughtered. And one generation later in the United States of America, they met and fell in love and had a kid. And to me, that's always been what America has been about. And so even as I've moved through my life as a business person and you know doing various philanthropic work, 
I always was alert to that special promise of America. It was part of my family background. So my studies in school were on things like this. So when Donald Trump came down the escalator, a chill went down my spine. And not everything has happened the way that I feared, but a lot of what I feared would happen has happened. And that's been the motivation for me to be in politics. So you talk about him coming down the escalator. Let's flash back to 2016. Did you know he was going to win? I didn't know. I thought he was. I thought so too. Yeah. I made a decision to short the market because I thought the markets would react poorly to Trump's victory. So I got the Trump victory right, but I should have shorted the peso. Anyway, so I didn't make money on that bet. I lost it, but I did think he was going to win. Look, the nature of humans is that people like that win sometimes. That kind of a figure has existed in America and around the world, and sometimes they win. And he had some of the things that made it seem like he might, and he did. You know, he painted himself as this outsider, you know, really fighting for the man. My family's from Galesburg, Illinois. Galesburg is a place that President Obama talked about in the 2004 convention speech because we lost Maytag. Maytag had moved to Mexico. Our economy was changing so rapidly. And it's a place that went for Obama and then went for Trump. It's kind of one of those places that, you know, a lot of people, they felt left behind. They still feel left behind. And so for me, it was very real. You know, my brother was texting me pictures of him in Trump gear. And it's amazing to me how a guy who lived in a penthouse in New York City with a gold toilet cast himself as every man, but he did. Con men can be very good strong men. There was a book that came out last year. I don't know if you read it. It was uh, called Fever in the Heartlands. It was a historical nonfiction about the 1930s in America. And it was about the rise of the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan in the Midwest, especially Indiana. And it was under the leadership of one man named D.C. Stevenson, who was a con man, you know, and eventually went to jail for murder. But for a period of time, he was in charge. I mean, he controlled Indiana politics, soup to nuts. And, uh, you know, frauds can succeed. That's part of the mix of things. It's not like other legendary despots like uh, Hugo Chavez or Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler were particularly fond of truth. I mean, they were all liars and falsifiers as well. Well, you mentioned Hugo Chavez. I met Hugo Chavez. He surprised President Obama at Summit of Americas in Trinidad and Tobago. He came and gave us a book on how to govern, which was interesting. Of course, he would die later of cancer. And yet Venezuela is part of the problem, right? They used to be a functioning democracy, and they have changed so rapidly. I have a lot of friends from Venezuela who warn very much that democracy is very fragile. We can't take anything for granted. So tell me, what did you predict when Trump won? What did you think would happen compared to what happened? I thought the uh, I thought that the economy would do worse under his leadership because I did not realize the extent to which people like Gary Cohn and Rex Tillerson would literally go in there and like steal orders off of his desk to prevent him from doing damage. Now, it is the case that in defense of myself, I would say the economy did perform soup to nuts in a predictably bad way, right? It's the worst set of job losses since Herbert Hoover. And people will say, well, there was a big shock, a big event. 
But broadly, you know, Donald Trump is somebody who's been through a lot of bankruptcies. And so he got a bunch of money and stimulated a debt fuel binge. And everybody remembers that. And they blame the crash on, well, there was an event, but there's always an event. And Donald Trump is the one who put things in place in such a way that it was a mismanaged economy. There wasn't a lot of cushion. So even on the economy, which is the thing I got the most wrong, I would defend myself. The thing that I was not sure would happen was the total collapse of the Republican Party. I had hoped that there would be more Jeff Flakes, more Liz Cheney's, that they would find a way to come together rather than, you know, individually being isolated and unpersoned. So the collapse of the Republican Party was worse than I thought. The thing that was dead on that I thought is that Trump would not leave office without violence. And that happened. You know, it's interesting that you say that. Mick Mulvaney, I've gotten to know very well through News Nation. He's been on Press Advance. And we've talked about, you know, the cause of inflation a number of times. And he said, you know, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. And you're absolutely right. You know, once Trump basically injected a sugar high into a data-based economy that Obama had built over eight years by introducing the tax cuts, the tax cuts stimulated the economy. And then, because they ignored a pandemic for three months at least, uh, didn't send any investigators into China when they could have. At the very beginning of the pandemic, they were focused on a trade deal in which they said that they were going to sell U.S. manufactured goods, U.S. meat products, all of our grains from the Midwest. They were supposedly negotiating that. And even Mike Gallagher has said that Trump was ignoring some of China's worst offenses during that time. Mike Gallagher, of course, head of the China committee and a Republican. And so we had a massive global pandemic in which they fueled the economy with massive amounts of free money, more fraud and abuse than we have seen, than money has been spent, U.S. taxpayer money has been spent on the war in Ukraine or the conflicts overseas, which, you know, I think a lot of times I see Biden take the blame for inflation. And to me, it's like, ah, I think Trump shares some blame. So- <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's so right, Johanna. If you listen to some of these economists, especially the right of center ones, I just want to tell them, like, guys, just look at a chart of the economy over time. Look when the expansion started and look at when Trump's tax cuts hit. You look at that as a right of center economist. Tell me that's not inflationary. You waited until the end of a super long boom that started in 2010. And in 2017, seven years into this boom, into this cycle, when you're looking to sort of ease into more sustainability, that's when you get a sugar high. It's crazy. And yeah, that is part of why things were so inflationary. Right. Well, and you might be among the group that benefited from a tax cut. I know I always admired Warren Buffett for saying over and over, you know, he's paying less percentage than his secretary, which is not fair. I think a lot of people, you know, they think a flat tax would be fairer than the system that we have now. It's so complicated and so challenging. You know, the wealthiest Americans got a a lot of tax cuts. And now the people who are paying for it the most are those who are suffering from this inflation at a rapid pace. And so for them, 
they're blaming it on Biden. What could Biden do now? And I know we had the Inflation Reduction Act, but to actually bring down the cost of goods for Americans, you know, the cost of gas is something Republicans talk about all the time. And the price of gas is still high. First of all, I think you're absolutely right. Voters have anchored their judgment of Biden's economic record based on a comparison with the United States economy prior to COVID. That's the anchor. It just is. People have decided that nothing happened under COVID is in any way Donald Trump's fault and that therefore Donald Trump should only be judged during the uh, pre-disaster period of his presidency. And because of that, if you look at that apples to apples, real wages, meaning the nominal wages, but you take out inflation, real wages are actually down from there for most people still. People need to feel like they're up and they're getting very close to being net positive from there. And by the time we get into the summer and people start making their decisions, real wages will probably be positive in that way and people will be feeling it a little bit. But still, that is just broad background noise. That doesn't answer your question, which is what can Biden do? And to my mind, Biden can do only a few things and he's doing them. He is acknowledging that prices are too high and he is working to fix them. So, for example, it is not widely known that the United States is now producing more oil than it has ever produced, than any nation has ever produced it ever. We have maxed out oil production in this country over every other country ever. That's a thing that is happening under a Democratic leadership, and it's happening in a lot of individual Democratic states like Pennsylvania. You know, Governor Shapiro is doing natural gas releases, you know, uh, drillings rather. There's a lot going on to lower the cost of energy. Also, Joe Biden's administration has used antitrust enforcement to make things cheaper. So, for example, you can now buy hearing aids over the counter instead of going through the guild system. And that means hearing aids are, you know, 70, 80% cheaper for people who want them. It's not gas. It's not something you see you know, in a neon on the corner every day, but it's for people who need it, that matters. And then there's also things that are everywhere. Negotiating healthcare prices, using Medicare and Medicaid and government purchasing power, that will drive healthcare prices down. Capping the price of insulin. These are all very aggressive efforts to get prices down. And Biden's doing all of them. Well, it is for small businesses across America, but specifically in some of these places that are hurting, it's just impossible to compete. The internet has changed everything. People are shopping online, you know. That's also been a huge change. And I I was talking to a young, you know, idealistic 18-year-old who was telling me, you know, what he thought would be the fairest system. And I was like, you build that model and come back to me and tell me what that model is. <laughs> but the truth is, you know, like if we look at capitalism, it's supposed to reward good businesses and give people, you know, a fighting edge. And it's so hard because it's so lopsided right now with big mega businesses and technology giants 
How does that right size and how do people in Galesburg, Illinois, trust that that will right size when a lot of the people at those businesses are funding Biden's reelection? Well, a couple of things. One, big businesses in general, some of them are partisan and some of them, some of them are partisan Democrats and some of them are partisan Republicans. In general, more of them are partisan Republicans more of the big businesses, especially big businesses that are, you know, extractive industries, oil and gas and coal, businesses that require cheap labor and lots of it. Those kinds of businesses tend to prefer Republicans. Businesses like technology companies that rely upon the rule of law and that require, you know, people to be, you know, well-trained and well-educated, they tend to prefer Democrats. And Uh, It's not universal. You get some crossover. But from the perspective of somebody who is trying to make ends meet as a small business owner, there are so many things that are wrong with our landscape between big businesses and small. Do you want to talk about crazy things we could do that would make things radically better? I mean, yes. (laughs) Yes, I want good ideas on press advance. (laughs) There are a lot of people who don't like this idea, but right now the federal government gets $1.5 trillion a year of its revenue. So something like a quarter of its budget comes from wage taxes. And what that is, is the Social Security, FICA, all that stuff on there. And people will say, oh, that's not a wage tax. It's just insurance. But there's all sorts of reasons it's not true. It's a wage tax. You're, You're getting your money by taking a piece of cash out of everybody's weekly check. And if you understand economics, you understand that when you've got a supply demand curve for labor, If you subsidize wages, you'll get more jobs at higher wages. And if you tax wages, you'll get fewer jobs at lower wages. And so there are 100 million W-2 wage earners in this country. And uh, they are all making less money. And there are fewer of them by a lot than if we didn't have a $1.5 trillion a year tax drag on people earning paychecks. And if you replace that system with a system that uh, gets resources from other sources, like there are people who've been talking about a Robin Hood wealth tax, where you tax financial transactions above at a certain speed at a low rate, a carbon tax at uh, even $20 a ton, you, you add a few of those things in, you can replace a trillion and a half a year in an economy as large as ours, and you can do it in a way where the burden is not borne by workers, or small business owners, the burden is borne on the assets, the extracted assets, the data, the financial transactions, the the gas. That's fascinating. If we propose something like that, I could see people in Galesburg getting excited. Now, (laughs) how could we pass it is a whole other thing, but we're not even having those debates right now, Dimitri. So one of the things I'm frustrated a little bit with both parties is that we've moved into this system and, you know, we have an incumbent. So, I mean, we have two incumbents. Yeah, we have an incumbent. And then we have we have someone who has claimed that he's been wrongfully taken uh, from that office and has always been the longstanding dear leader who wants to come back in. But now I'm so troubled by a presidential cycle 
where we may not even have a debate. I mean, the RNC has pulled out of the debate structure. I don't see the Biden administration agreeing to something that isn't within that structure. We're not having that debate. Are you frustrated by that? Uh, yeah, although you mentioned that you're frustrated with the political parties, both of them. And I I am not a fan of either major political party. I sometimes like to joke that the Democratic political party is my second most hated major political party in the United States because they're really, they both have problems, but uh, they are structures. They are vehicles that organize human beings. And, you know, there's only so much good to be had of being frustrated with vehicles. The problem is deeper. It's individual leaders in both parties. It's individual voters in both parties. Also, we are now at a point where around the world, we are having a debate over whether we should even have what used to be called constitutional democracy or classical liberal democracy. You know, all around the world, you have angry rural areas primarily in Iran, in Russia, in Turkey, in Brazil. It is the rural voters who tend to be more physical, they tend to have higher participation in the military, they tend to be a lot more religious in all of these countries, and they tend to really not like the cities. And the cities are the places where you tend to have more of the bureaucracies and the financial industries and the idea industries and the cultural industries, and the cities from that get a lot of wealth and power, and it's created this fault line of resentment around the world. And so you have city people and rural people really don't like each other. I mean, rural people really don't like city people right now. And part of that is you can say, well, Fox News is feeding them garbage about what cities are really like, but it's not just in America. It's everywhere, all over the world. So the Democratic Party is basically the system as it used to be. It's complicated. It's messy. There's a lot of factions. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of evidence. There's a lot, you know, a lot of craziness. The Republican Party is not that. The Republican Party is now a mobilized authoritarian movement around Donald Trump. I mean, Mike Gallagher is retiring <laughs> because at the age of 39. I know. That, uh, that he's depresses me. He's retiring at the age of 39. That depresses me because he he's is. actually really good. He is. <laughs> I know. I know, but you can't get enough power within the party structure. And like the primary voters have shown us they're not interested in an alternative on the Republican side. I mean, Nikki Haley was one. I got to talk about money and politics with you because you have such an incredible vantage point here. You are uh, directing a lot of money in this presidential election and others. I'm concerned we have way too much money in politics and that that, you know, upends like who's able to get into office. It's almost like now there's this, if you want to run for office, you have to have a certain number of dollars. You have to have a certain endorsement. You have to have these key things to get through the primaries. And then you run a general election campaign. And we're almost using too much of the science. But tell me, one, what do you think about money in politics? Do you agree that there's too much money in politics as someone who's putting money in politics right now. <laughs> and two, what can we do to make sure that the best person actually has a chance? In general, you've raised this more broadly, concentrated wealth and power. It's a problem. There should be a lot more distributed wealth and power. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of prosperity in this world. We could share it more broadly and it would be better. As it relates to politics, 
there are huge problems with the way money works in politics. It infuriates me that Leonard Leo, a theocrat who wants to impose his, frankly, bizarre religious practices on all of us through a court machinations process, was given $1.6 billion as an estate gift from a dude who made surge protectors at a time when they were there's a lot of surge protector need. Gave his appreciated assets to Leonard Leo to spend as he sees fits. That's $1.6 billion for the theocrats. That is several hundred million dollars every single cycle in dark money with no accountability that is just going after our Enlightenment era traditions. It's, it's brutal. And I hate that. I wish there was not that system. I wish the system was far more transparent. I think that the free speech law that the Supreme Court has built around campaign finance is not well considered. The decisions are not well structured. However, I don't think we have too much money in politics. I wish there was less dark money. A lot of money is spent really stupidly. And, you know, given the stakes, spending, you know, whatever, there's going to be about $30 billion spent on this campaign cycle uh, for an economy that is worth, I don't know, $20 trillion. It's a lot. I don't know if it's too much or not. What I'm more worried about is your point about how do you make sure good people can win? And there, I think the solution, actually, there's a really great book that just came out. It's written by a guy named Nick Troiano. It's called The Primary Solution. Uh, Nick Troiano is one of the recent authors of this. Another another person who wrote a similar book, not quite the same, is um, Catherine Gale and Michael Porter wrote a book called The Politics Industry. Both of these books essentially recommend that you eliminate partisan primaries so that instead of having these two political parties choose the nominees and then the swing voters weigh in after they have chosen, the, the problem that that creates is that, you know, most Democrats actually really like Joe Biden. They may think he's a little old, but they really like him. Most Republicans really like Donald Trump. Like these parties have millions of members and these parties like these two nominees. That's why they've won. The problem is, is that there's this other part of the electorate who's, you know, the other third of us who are not in either of those parties, really, who are or certainly not, you know, active in the primaries or whatever, who don't want those, who want to weigh in before the final decision. They don't want to have to pick between those two. And fundamentally, I think that would be better. And the system that they recommend is essentially you have a uh, a little bit like what California has, which is you have a jungle primary. Exactly. So everybody kind of goes against one another. And in California, they've done a pretty good job of enforcing that you have to go through that process. Now, in Nevada, they just pulled the presidential race on the Republican side out of the primary process and made it a closed door caucus. So they have ways to manipulate these things, which is, I, I think, frankly, ugly. But but, you know, the jungle primary in California, while it could produce the best people, has I mean, California has become this state that it just costs so much money. And you have to be a Democrat, essentially, or you have to be pro-choice in the state of California. And I don't have a problem with people who are Democrats or <laughs> pro-choice because I'm both. But like it it does kind of make it difficult for any of these actual robust debates about economic policy or things like that to take place. Well, but Johanna, before you write off California, just remember when those reforms were put in place, the jungle primary and the independent redistricting, California was widely described as ungovernable. The headlines mm. were, is California <laughs> America's Greece? This is when Greece was, you know, was, was bankrupt. And like, <laughs> 
it's better. Like now part of that was Jerry Brown was a good governor or whatever, but like California has done pretty well. And that set of reforms is actually not as aggressive as the set of reforms that Catherine Gale and Nick Troiano recommend, which is in California, it's the top two. Uh, but their proposal is that you have a, a jungle primary and then the top four oh. advance to the final. And then what you do is you have an automatic runout. So the voters rank their, their choices in order and then you have an automatic runoff. Ranked choice voting. Yeah, that's actually that's a very good idea. So that system in a place like California, it's it has worked in California. California is more governable. It is still very liberal. It is a democratic state, but it is more governable than it was. And also ranked choice voting like Nevada has a referendum to implement ranked choice voting. And in Nevada, a voter approved referendum has to be passed two years in a row. But it passed last time. So if it passes this time, you'll have it in Nevada. You raised some good points. And in California, you are right. I love California. Whenever I'm watching people like Kimberly Guilfoyle, who, of course, used to be married to our governor before, talk about it's having all of these problems. I'm kind of like, hmm, I think that that's selective editing. <laughs> Anyone who comes visits me really loves California. So <laughs> I don't think they need to be so concerned. So now I need predictions. All right. So the prediction, look, it is really a 50-50 race. So it has been very clear that the electorate is frozen and that 90% of the vote in 2024 will be the same people doing the same thing as in 2020. Unfortunately, as certain as we are of that, that little bit in the middle is decisive. So, you know, you flip 100,000 votes out of 100 million cast and you flip both 2020 and 2016, you know, if you flip the right vote. So these are incredibly close elections and that'll be true again this time. I believe Joe Biden will win. I just believe in my heart after being very disappointed in America in 2016, I believe in my heart that now that we know who this man is, we will not make this choice. That's what I believe. But I'm not sure. And the betting markets give it about 50-50. Well, if Trump wins, which is possible, what happens? What do you believe will happen? I am on the extreme edge of this. I believe that he will hold a military parade on Patriot's Day. And the first Patriot's Day, because Patriot's Day will be chosen as January 6th, the first Patriot's Day will be in 2026. So I believe Patriot's Day, January 6th, 2026, he will have a military parade. He will have all of the pardoned January 6th criminals and insurrectionists leading the various military agencies. And the military power there will create a cordon around the Capitol that will prevent state National Guards from helping. And so it will just be the violent militia against the D.C. Capitol Police, and it will be more unbalanced than last time. And Trump, unlike last time, Trump will be allowed to go and settle things down, but it will only be after a couple of members of Congress who had been blocking his appointees uh, had actually been killed. And once that happens, uh, that will be our sort of Reichstag's fire moment. So I don't, I think Liz Cheney is right. I don't think Donald Trump leaves office alive if he gets office again. There's nothing. Once that happens, we will not have the physical ability to prevent him from running for a third term. Now, here's my one bit of pushback on that. Please. It's a very dark scenario, I know. It is a dark scenario. And I know that that's a fear. It's a fear that's within all of us, I think. But 
America has a lot of checks and balances. And even when I'm listening to this list of potential vice presidential candidates, there's not a single one of them that isn't also self-interested <laughs> and wouldn't want that post if they were given the ability to be president of the United States. And some of them are smarter than others. That's for sure. <laughs> some of them I'm like, oh, God. But I just have to believe that at that moment, and it is young women who are standing up against Donald Trump, many of whom I've known and uh, worked with a lot. Alyssa Farah Griffin, Stephanie Grisham has been on this podcast. Olivia Troy has been on here. Cassidy Hutchinson, like all of these young women actually have been standing up for the Republican Party. I think you could see more of them if it gets really bad. And I wonder if it if the self-interest of those politicians, including the vice president, wouldn't kick in so that they could have the power instead of Donald. Maybe. And look, there are many, many places where our system is set up to give people incentives to create checks. But if you look at the checks and balances in our system, I mean, look at the ones that are written down. So there's an emoluments clause. There are two emoluments clauses in our constitution to prevent the president from receiving money to bribe him or influence him corruptly. There's an impeachment clause, which can be used if there's clear evidence of his guilt. And there are numerous criminal statutes that can be used to put him in jail after he leaves office if he's engaged in crime. And if he becomes president, he will have blown through all of those. And so what's left? So you imagine, say, it's Elise Stefanik. Okay. Imagine Elise Stefanik, or whatever, right? but just say it's Elise. I cannot see how Elise Stefanik, like Trump will use his, the loyalty that he has among extremely big, violent men uh, to control the, I mean, loyalists of Donald Trump who are heavily armed, there are 20 million of them at least, who believe in QAnon and all the things, and they control all the Republican state parties if Donald Trump says that he deserves a third term because the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax wipes out the first term and gets on the ballot as the Republican nominee in enough states to win the Electoral College, who's going to stop him? Elise Stefanik is going to say you can't? Because why? Well, I think it's maybe even bigger than that, Dimitri. But I fear for the world where it's AOC versus Josh Hawley and we don't have like the yeah. the but people at, who but, actually believe in common sense governing. <laughs> look at Abby Spanberger. Look at Mikey Sherrill. Look at Wes Moore. Oh, look at Larry they're Hogan. They're fantastic. They're fantastic. Yes. If we can just hand them a working democracy, we'll be fine. Dimitri Melhorn, thank you so much for coming to Press Advance. Patriot's Day, January 6, 2026. You know, some people will say it's not possible, and some people will say it is. But anyone who studies history knows that our democracy, our republic, is fragile. And if we don't respect the rule of law that puts us in or out of office, it sets up for a scary situation. If you listen to Press Advance, you know we believe in a kind of politics that respects, empowers, includes. So you know that I want your feedback. You can find me on social media at Johanna Masca. If you're enjoying this podcast, every Tuesday we drop a new episode. So please like and subscribe. My thanks go to the talented team at Situation Room Studios for producing this episode of Press Advance.